0: This week, the results of the latest click it or ticket seatbelt campaign, the inspiring story of Golden Gopher Casey O'Brien, and a frightening story just in time for Halloween. But first, Minnesota's death by suicide rate has risen significantly over the last 17 years. That's according to a new study from the State Health Access Data Assistance Center. I chatted with the study's Colin Planelp about the troubling trend.
1: In this study, we looked at uh, suicides uh, o- over the past two decades or so in the United States and across, uh, across the states. Uh, so over the past two decades, we've seen that the United States has experienced growing suicide death rates from 2000 to 2017. U.S. death rates from suicide grew 35% and that's from 10.4 to 14.0 deaths per 100,000 people. Uh, And the increase in suicide rates has been even larger in Minnesota, uh, where they've grown 56% from 8.9 to 13.8 deaths per 100,000 people. Uh, Among the 50 states, for comparison, Minnesota had the 14th highest rate of increase for suicide deaths.
0: And Colin, what do we attribute that, uh, that 56% increase to?
1: That's a really great question. I think there are lots of public health researchers uh, who, who want to know the answer to that. One concerning sign is that it's something that we're really seeing across the nation uh, through the 50 states. There are only a couple that have not seen a significant increase in, in suicide rates. And we're also seeing this across nearly every demographic group when when we looked at this across demographic groups.
0: In terms of methods, I know I've seen studies that uh, guns are often associated with suicides. Does Does that play into the numbers in some way?
1: Yeah, so one thing that we did for this study is we looked at at, uh, differences in suicide by method of firearm and non-firearm methods, and we see there's variation across the states. In Minnesota, uh, a small majority of suicides uh, are are by non-firearm methods, uh, and Uh, Across the United States, Uh, again, there's a small majority by non-fire methods, and that's a change over time. Uh, In in 2000, uh, we we saw at the national level that firearms accounted for for most suicides, and that's no longer the case.
0: What do we know in terms of uh, race and ethnicity with relation to the numbers in Minnesota?
1: So what we see with race and ethnicity is uh, the, the same patterns that we saw uh, back in 2000 with, with, with the groups that had the highest rates of suicide, those patterns are being exacerbated. So uh, American Indians and whites historically have had the highest rates of suicide, and they also experienced the, the largest increases in suicide rates since 2000 the rates for white since 2000 grew almost 50% and the rates for american indians uh, nearly
2: doubled since 2000
0: you know one thing we like to look at is how things are are impacting urban areas versus rural areas here in minnesota what's the uh, what's the comparison here w- as far as the data shows
3: mm-hmm.
1: w- one thing i do want to clarify is for these for these demographic groups, we looked at the U.S. rather than Minnesota because there's some limitations in in the data looking at uh, some of these smaller numbers, but for the U.S., we found uh, that there are differences across urban and rural areas. Uh, Historically, rural communities had the highest suicide rates looking back to 2000.
0: And Colin, I'm curious, can you tell me, once we have this data, what, what do we do with it? I mean, how do we use this information to, to try to get the, the numbers going in the right direction versus the way they've been going?
1: So I think one of the first places to start is awareness of this problem. Uh, that's part of what we're trying to do is make data, aware, uh, data available to states and policymakers so that they can make informed decisions. Our focus here wasn't necessarily to to promote any specific intervention, but, but I think it's helpful to know uh, w- which states have the highest suicide rates, uh, which states are seeing their problem of, of suicide uh, increase at the, at the largest rates, and also knowing the, the demographic groups that, that are at the highest risk such as American Indians and whites, people in rural areas, uh, and, uh, and, and by age. There, there are also some, some concerning signs there that, that uh, are, are worth keeping an eye on.
0: Do you have a, any particular message for listeners out there who happen to be listening to this? Uh, you know, somebody who might be feeling depressed or suicidal, uh, is there a particular resource or a place that they can turn if they need help?
1: I would encourage people to reach out to the, the National uh, uh, Suicide Hotline if, if they have concerns about suicide for themselves or, or someone they know. Uh, I also want to mention, historically, children have had low rates of, of suicide, but w- we found something very disturbing in our analysis, and that, that, that's the children ages 10 to 14 had the highest rate of increase in suicide from 2000 to 2017. Uh, Their suicide rates grew uh, 70% during that time period. And for comparison, that's double the the rate of increase that we saw for the U.S. population overall.
0: And why do we think that is?
1: Uh, Again, that's, that's a really great question that a lot of people want to know the answer to. Uh, and th- that's just going to require ad- additional
0: research in the future. Thank you to my guest, Shattuck researcher Colin Planelp. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The results of the latest Click It or Ticket seatbelt campaign show, there's still more work to be done. Tasha Radel has more.
5: That's right, Scott. During the two-week extra enforcement wave, officers, deputies, and troopers reported 4,415 seatbelt citations and 96 child seat violations. This compares with 4,610 seatbelt citations and 140 child seat violations during the 2018 campaign. Joining me now is Mike Hansen, head of the Office of Traffic Safety. Mike, let's start with your initial reaction to the campaign results.
3: I guess the, the first thing that, that pops into my mind when I look at the results of, of what we saw with our partner agencies is frustration. You know the fact that we are still encountering almost 4,500 motors out there who are not taking a simple two seconds to put that seatbelt on before they put that car in gear, Um, it's frustrating because uh, unbelted uh, occupants still make up about a third of our fatalities. And every one of those is completely preventable and does not have to happen if people make sure that every trip, every ride, every occupant always has that belt on
5: And, you know, I was kind of looking at the breakdown of um, the the different citations, and obviously the Twin Cities metro area has a high number due to, I'm guessing, population. Was there any other areas of the state that were a little bit frustrating?
3: Well, I think if you look across the state, um, uh, we see similar trends there. You know, our statewide compliance rate uh, is 93.4%, which tells us that just over 6% of drivers are the ones that are are not putting that seatbelt on, and yet they're accounting for a third of our fatalities, and, and that that's an alarming statistic. Certainly, we, we face a number of uh, of challenges in Greater Minnesota. We don't have the law enforcement resources out there uh, that you would perhaps uh, in our urban areas, and so. Um, getting that compliance rate up uh, through enforcement takes a little bit more work. But with that being said, I think, you know, when I talk with our law enforcement partners out there, we can't enforce our way out of this. This is about every driver making the decision every trip to make sure that every occupant is buckled up. It's the driver's responsibility before that car is put in gear to make sure that you are doing everything to keep your passengers safe. Your friends, your family, uh, your coworkers, everybody is depending on that driver to make that good decision.
5: Mike, let's look at the fatalities from last year. Obviously, one is too many.
3: You know, the the 96 Minnesotans who were killed last year as a result of not having that seatbelt on, that's the highest we've seen since 2014. We can and we will reverse that trend, but it's going to take a combination of uh, drivers changing their behavior And we're going to have to back that up with some uh, additional enforcement. And so look for us to continue to work with our law enforcement partners as we try and find strategies and ways of doing business that will get us to that voluntary compliance rate where we can be uh, like other states like Washington and several others that have 98% compliance rate.
5: And, Mike, you know, I might be putting you on the spot, but I was just curious, and if you don't know, no worries. Um, I got thinking about the hands-free law. How has that been going?
3: You know, it's a little early for us to look at any of our statistical information and draw any solid conclusions from that. What I can tell you, though, anecdotally, talking with our law enforcement partners, and based on what I see during my own commute every day, most Minnesotans are getting that message. Certainly there still is a substantial amount of enforcement activity taking place out there, but not to the extent that I think many of us anticipate So our public outreach uh, campaign... Uh, which we started the day the the bill was signed and that we are going to continue right through 2019 and 2020 is having an effect. Most Minnesotans know about the law. Most Minnesotans are complying with it. Matter of fact, most drivers who receive that citation know about the law and know what they were doing was wrong, but yet they still haven't figured out how to fight that addiction. So I think we're on the right track, but it's going to take us uh, some time to get everybody to that high level of compliance that we need that will continue to save lives on Minnesota roads.
5: Thanks again to my guest, Mike Hansen, head of the Office of Traffic Safety. Back to you, Scott.
0: Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. U of M football player Casey O'Brien of St. Paul made national news headlines this past week because he finally did what he's dreamt of doing his entire life. The sophomore placeholder on the Golden Gopher football team finally got to play in a game when he held on three extra points in Minnesota's 42-7 win at Rutgers last weekend. He was a perfect 3-for-3 three three on the holds. So why have highlights of O'Brien's game appearance been showing up on the Today Show, on the ABC Nightly News, on ESPN Center, and others? Well, he's a four-time cancer survivor who thought he might never get to play football again after being diagnosed with a rare and often deadly form of cancer when he was a freshman in high school. A tumor near his knee meant he had to have an artificial knee put in, and that ended any hopes of playing football as it relates to taking hard contact and tackling. But Gopher head coach P.J. Fleck offered him a chance to be a part of the team as the holder on field goals and extra points, where contact would be minimal, if at all. So, for two and a half years, O'Brien has been practicing with the team every day, fine tuning the craft of holding the football. But he'd never played in a real game. That changed last Saturday in New Jersey when Fleck told O'Brien to go in and hold an extra point in the fourth quarter. And then again and again. In all, he was on the field for three kicks. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with Casey earlier this week to reflect on what the past eight days have been like.
6: With the man of the week, Casey O'Brien. How how does it feel? What's this week been like for you?
7: Um, Honestly, it's it's been surreal. Uh, I'm still waiting to uh, to wake up from this dream.
6: Um, When you take me back to the moment, um, just walk me through step by step what that was like. When did you know for sure that it was going to be your opportunity? And um, so much happened there. I know you told Guardsy afterwards you kind of blacked out for a minute. Um, Can can you recall now some of those details?
7: Yeah, it's getting a little better, but uh, it was a fourth and one play, and we ended up going for it. And Jacob Herbs, our starting holder, was taking a couple snaps. And our backup punter, Alex Melvin, he was like, well, you better go take one just in case coach turns around. And uh, we ended up scoring, and coach turned around and said, Casey, go. So I had to go out there and and do
6: my job. On to hold for this extra point, ladies and gentlemen, Casey O'Brien, making his college football debut in a Big Ten game. He will hold this extra point. The young man from St. Paul, Minnesota. Creighton-Durham Hall. Snap there. O'Brien has the hole down. The extra point kick is up, and Casey O'Brien is being patted on the helmet. Everybody is showcasing Casey O'Brien. He's meant so much to this program. He's had an impact. He gets a high five and a chest bump from his quarterback, and the whole team, the whole team is out congratulating Casey O'Brien. Very heartwarming story, Mike. Four-time cancer survivor, great young man, football player. Uh, As much as uh, his dad sometimes wishes he wasn't still playing football, he's like, these are my friends, these are my brothers, I love it, so great thing to see him on the field get an opportunity to do the thing that he loves what a moment in piscataway new jersey casey o'brien makes his big 10 football debut his dad dan o'brien a longtime staff member for the gophers in that espn video said football has kept my son alive and he's a football player today he has an embrace from pj fleck How many holds would you estimate? Have you thought about how many holds over the course of your time on campus you've practiced in practice before you got the real chance to put one down on the turf? I would say 10,000 at the
7: least. 10,000 at the very least.
6: Every day you practice?
7: Every day probably 100 balls.
6: You and I talked in Chicago, um, and, and now we all knew your story here locally, but when you had the uh, the great speech in Chicago as a student-athlete representative, then it became kind of a regional, more national look, and obviously this weekend things have gone on to a, to a viral level all across this country. Um, but when we talked in Chicago, you mentioned when you first went in and asked Coach Fleck if you could have this chance that you told him, I just don't want to be here to be here. I want to compete for a job. I want to go out and, and someday be a holder every down." Um, what, what, what? From that day till now, uh, first of all, take me through that conversation with Coach Fleck, and then um, what, what this journey has been like? Yeah,
7: um, I wanted to play college football. And I didn't, I didn't want it to be a feel-good story. I wanted to go out there and, and help our team win games. And uh, so I, I met with him, and I was like, "I'm, I want to play for you, and I want to play." So he gave me that shot, and he said, "If you're the best we got, you're going to play." So um, he, he's, he's the one who gave me the chance, and uh, thankful for it.
6: Earlier in the week, we talked on the coaches' show um, about the embrace. You uh, you tracked Coach down, he wasn't tracking you down. You wanted to go thank him. Um, he said that he would kind of keep that conversation to to you too. But what was that like? You don't have to share the details specifically, but what was the tenor or the tone of that conversation?
7: Um, it was uh, it was definitely emotional. Um, I just wanted to, him to let uh, let him know how much I, I'm thankful to, to get to play for him. Um, I've said it a million times, but he's the only coach in the country that gave me a chance, and uh, it means the world to me.
6: What do these guys mean to you, to have that reception? They were patting you on the helmet, you got the high five from the quarterback, and then everybody was standing in line wanting to to, uh, to say great job.
7: Yeah, I mean, I got, I got a smile just thinking about it. Um, if there's anybody that's believed in me, it's this team, and that's the uh, the first thing I thought was get the ball down and then uh, go find your teammates. So that's, that's the only people that I wanted to share it with.
6: And with that moment, I mean, there was some, uh, you know, some weight hanging over the kicker, Michael Lance. I'm sure he didn't want to shank one on your on your hold attempt here, your first college debut. So uh, he stood up uh, to the pressure and, and drilled it right down the middle. Yeah, I
7: know. He was talking about uh, he had he had more butterflies than he had in his first game. He said so. I was glad he made it.
6: Yeah, for sure. Then your second hold, uh, the snap was a little low, a little bit low. And hey, let me know when you go ahead. Uh, the snap was a little bit low, and you were able to uh, to, to uh, spike it to the ground and then get it back up.
7: Yeah. Um, at that point, uh, I'd gotten my first play out of the way, and then I was just playing football. So, um, I mean, I've done it a thousand times, so I, I had an inside snap, and just instincts took over and had to make a play.
6: You told us in Chicago, too, that you know those days where you're spending the night in the hospital and you have a family member laying on the couch in your room and they're pumping chemicals into you in the morning and you're practicing that afternoon that getting back into that locker room is what kept you going you just kept saying what's what's next just tell me what the next step is in this process does that just continue now for you as as you move forward from this big moment yeah um so now that i've
7: gotten gotten into one game i want to figure out how to get in the next one so um However, I can expand my story and impact other people and then keep keep playing for this team is what I want to do.
6: Uh, you had a mention on the Today Show. You're on NBC Nightly News. ESPN obviously has had a bunch of stuff. I think there's uh, more happening this weekend. Um, that kind of impact, uh, who are you hearing from? I mean, uh, on social media, what have you, uh, uh, text messages. I mean, how, how big has this been this week for you?
7: Um, I don't think that anybody could have imagined that it was going to be this big. Um, I've heard from hundreds and hundreds of people um, just within like Instagram and Twitter and just reaching out saying that uh, they're going through cancer or their family members going through cancer and they wanted me to know how much their story means and uh, that's what's important to me is being able to, to be someone that other people can look to.
6: Anybody that, uh, that you've heard from that has surprised you or that would surprise us?
7: Uh, Coach Bob Stoops gave me a call from Oklahoma.
6: Wow, that's pretty cool. What did he have to say? He
7: just said that uh, he was proud of me and that he wanted to uh, wanted me to know how much he was thinking about me
6: that's that's unbelievable well um any chance this weekend you you, you might be able to uh, get back in the football game
7: uh, i hope so we'll uh we'll have to uh, score some points <laughs> all
6: right very good casey it's been wonderful uh keep up the great work it's always fun to watch number 14 on the football field appreciate it thank you uh, roll the boat and go gophers
0: that's gopher hero casey o'brien and MN M&M sports director mike grimm minnesota matters returns after this
5: Your surgery is over.
4: Oh, it's over? What happened? Hi, Mr. Detweiler. Dr. Newman here. You have a new knee. It went great. You'll be up and around before you know it. And it's all because of you. Uh, what did I do? You were captain of Team Detweiler. You told us everything we needed to know. Your medical history, your allergies and prescription meds. You asked me tons of questions. What your options to surgery might be, what to expect during recovery. You even asked me how many knee replacements I've already done. Huh, I guess I did kind of run the whole operation, didn't I? Mr. Detweiler, we couldn't have done it without you. Patient safety, it takes a team, and patient involvement is key. A public service message from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons with more tips at orthoinfo.org slash safety.
0: Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Some people would certainly say that downtown Minneapolis can be a scary place, particularly after a rough Friday or Saturday night on Hennepin Avenue. But as Halloween draws near, MN's Bill Werner found cause for fright during a casual stroll through an historic, usually quiet neighborhood tucked next to Loring Park at the edge of downtown. Legions of
2: crows have invaded downtown Minneapolis. Well, not actually the central section where the tallest buildings are, but the adjoining neighborhoods, many of which have a plentiful population of not only humans but also trees and now crows. I didn't immediately notice that the birds were here. I heard their raucous cries from afar echoing against the sides of the high-rises, but didn't realize at first that great numbers of the birds were actually here among us day to day until I observed dozens, hundreds, even thousands of white splotches on the acres and acres of sidewalks and other pavement in the vicinity. Dropped mid-flight or from convenient resting places, and complementing the ubiquitous black spots which also adorn the places we walk daily. Remnants of gum ground into the concrete eons ago, turned dark by the grime of the city. I have a lot of respect for these crows, who are smart creatures, adept at locating from great height the reusable refuse of the city, winnowing useful detritus from crack and crevice and eking out their existence, as we all do. The only bird that I think I admire more is our neighborhood wild turkey, whom we have named Gertrude. She elicits more approval and certainly more prayers from me than those crows, mainly because she undertakes her work all alone, pairing with automobiles and trucks, dogs on long leashes and smartphone-wielding pedestrians taking selfies with local curiosa. All these distractions she deals with right at ground level while scratching around for her daily bread. The other night, walking home from the bus stop while counting all those white gobs on the sidewalk, I looked up and saw hundreds of crows directly over my head, right where I stood, perched on the bare branches, staring down, hunched over. surveying their prospects, I suppose, like gargoyles who ought to be stationed on the perimeter of the Basilica of St. Mary, several blocks away, sending down blessings to parishioners arriving for the evening Mass. (laughs) As I stood there under all those birds, I contemplated that at this point in my life, I am much too worldly to be frightened in such a situation by drawing any parallels to, say, the celebrated film of Alfred Hitchcock. Anyway, those were ravens, which are much more the stuff of legend than some old crow. Still, if those birds were to somehow realize the power of collective force and decide as a group to bomb me from the treetops, confusing their target as white splatters covered his coat and hat, when I disoriented fell to the ground and many hundreds of them would swoop down all at once and set upon me like the Lilliputians conquering Gulliver. and pick the meat from my bones and pry open the briefcase and extricate the apple left from my lunch. Uh, Yes, then they would prove that we are no longer boss.
0: That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.